Two of my greatest times with God have been followed by some of the most intense feelings of darkness and evil uh, that I've ever experienced. And uh, one of those stories I've told before, I was, I was reading a book about revival and uh, probably because of my arrogance and my pride, I, I felt like the weight of revival just kind of on me and like, like, like the revival of the world was stressing me out personally, uh, like I have some grand part in that. Uh, and I went upstairs and, and I was praying to God and the, the presence of God was so real to me, and I've said this before, that, that I was laying flat down on my face, worshiping God, and, and I thought when I opened my eyes, I was actually going to see the feet of Jesus. Like, I opened my eyes with, a, with an expectation that I was going to see his sandals, and I always laugh because I think it's so cliche that he was wearing sandals, like he still lived 2,000 years ago, but I thought I was going to see his sandals because his presence was so real, and then instantly, after I opened my eyes, I like, it just felt like I was surrounded by evil, and I was up there kind of in this moment, this weird moment where I had been meeting with God in this really profound, unique way. And this doesn't always happen in my prayer life. I mean, these, these stories are few and far between. I wish all my prayers were that great. But there I am like in this darkness. And then Bryn, I don't know how long I had been up there, but it hadn't been too long. She yelled from downstairs, are you coming to bed? And I was like, yes, because I was actually scared uh, as I was sitting upstairs. I went from this glorious moment in every way that you can use the word glorious, to this, this extreme kind of fear. Um, more recently, and this one I haven't shared with hardly anybody, uh, and this one makes me seem weird, and, and this is a little scary for me to share with you, but I was uh, almost two years ago now. Uh, I, I, was, I was praying, and it was that same type of, of experience. It was really intense. It was really powerful. And, and then at the end of it, the words just in my head, kill your dog. Now, if you know me, you know that I love my dog. It, it, I try to keep my wife above him, um, you know. Uh, and it became, and you go, wow, Chad would never kill his dog. That's what you think, right? Uh, and, I, and I haven't. Um, but but it, it, it messed with my brain and with my soul so much that... that <laughs> Thankfully, I have good people in this church. I, I mean, somebody, a dear friend in this church spent the night with me one night because I was so worried that I might kill my dog. Uh, I've reached out to mentors uh, to say, hey, I've actually said this. God doesn't want me to kill my dog, right? Because it came on the heels of this experience, and there was no separation. It went from glorious to like, what did I just hear in my brain? What just what just came to me. That's not something I would ever think. That's not, I'm, not, I'm not psycho as far as I know, but there were times. I mean, this is, a, this is two years, and I, I just now feel like I'm, I'm coming out of it. I've been dealing with this for two years. It ruined prayer times for me for about a year and a half because I was, I was really, and this sounds crazy as your pastor, I was scared to pray because I was scared to hear it again. I was scared to think about it. I, if I thought about God, then it felt like something was right there with me uh, saying, well, think about this. I questioned my salvation for a long time. If I don't kill my dog, do I really have faith in God? Is this from God? What if it is from God and I die and all of a sudden I'm not in heaven because I didn't have the faith of Abraham who was willing to sacrifice. That's a story that we cling to and think about in the Bible who was willing to sacrifice his own son. It's, I couldn't sleep. Um, 
I mean, I've had so many nights where I've fallen asleep watching TV because I wanted my brain to go somewhere else other than should I kill my dog? And it came, it's just this weird, from glorious to darkness just like that. And today we're continuing the series, and, and I think in part this series, a year ago we started it, uh, and it kind of was this, this just kind of want to talk about this for a couple weeks, and to be honest, if I'm just, uh, you know, probably shouldn't tell you this, but there was kind of a couple week break in, in my sermon schedule calendaring, and so it was like, well, we'll kind of talk about the spirituality of Christianity. But as I, I stand before you today, having kind of dealt with this, and it came back, and it goes, and it's come back, and it's something that, like, I've wrestled with, kind of thought I was over it, and then wrestled with again. Actually, one of the reasons I share the story is because a mentor of mine, uh, I, I, I told him, and he's like, I've dealt with some things like it, and one of the best things I did was tell my church. Uh, and it was embarrassing and awkward, and I thought they were going to put me in a mental institute, but they didn't, and they still like me. And so here I am expressing it. But I think what's happened, you know, in, in the last couple years is that, that the spirituality of Christianity has become a, a more important topic to me. Not a more important topic, because I hope that we all think that that the spirituality of our faith, if you're Christians, is an important topic. And especially, and this is kind of where it came from a year ago, you look around and everybody likes spirituality. It's like we live in a pretty spiritual world. We live in a pretty spiritual place. And in our community here in Villebois specifically, uh, there's a, a big yoga group that, and, and it's pretty spiritual sounding. I've never been, but the way that they kind of advertise it and talk about it is pretty spiritual sounding. People are drawn to spirituality, but it seems like the more people are drawn to spirituality, they're drawn away from Christianity because I think if you're, you know, like me, you're just like, what is the spirituality of Christianity? What does it mean to be spiritual in this faith that a lot of times we've kind of treated like a set of rules where we're just like, well, I have to do this and I have to do this and I have to do this. But when you've experienced the most glorious, I shouldn't say the most, but, but pretty extreme glorious moments with God that were inherently spiritual. They weren't in my brain. They weren't something that I conjured up. These are things that, that I'm just kind of praying like normal, and all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit does something to me that is different. I, I didn't grow up in a very charismatic-type church environment, so it's not something that I'm, like, trained to do. These are things that were, that were really just organic. They just came, and then they were followed by these extreme moments of darkness that also suggest that there is something very spiritual about the Christian faith that we've come to. And so we're going to continue over the next three weeks this topic, but today specifically we're going to talk about how there is a dark side to all of the good stuff that we think of when we think of the spirituality of Christianity. You see, in the book of Ephesians, we're going to continue in Ephesians today, it's a different series than we've been doing on our identity, but, but the end is really a great trans, uh, the word? transition, that's the word I'm looking for, a great transition into this other series, because Paul gets to the end of the book of Ephesians where he's talked about our identity, and he's talked about how we ought to live in light of our new identities in Christ, and, and then he stops, and it's like he knows that as we learn to live out the morality of being in Christ, if we're Christians, he knows that opposition is going to come, and it's going to be very spiritual, and it's going to be very evil, and sometimes it's going to be very difficult to live with. 
Now let me just, let me stop here and go, okay, some of you have never experienced things like I've ever experienced. That'd be your first, like, hey, wait a minute, I, I've never heard anything come into my brain, and you sound a little crazy, and I, I don't know what it means to have a spiritual relationship with God, like something that's beyond, like I ask God for things and hope he kind of answers it. In fact, uh, as we do, and I hope you'll be a part of this when we do it again in the fall, we do our, our serve course and people do this survey at the end uh, to kind of figure out what's the best place for them to serve moving forward in our church and, and I, I've been kind of interested kind of shocked that, that a majority of people in our congregation actually say in one of the questions uh, what is like some of your great spiritual moments what are some of your great moments with God your most memorable places where God has kind of touched your life the majority of people in our church say I've never really had a moment like that, except for coming to salvation, except for the moment I became a Christian. Never really had a, a moment like that. And so I want to say, first of all, you got my story. And if you don't believe me, then Dr. Wright, and I just steal his stories all the time. I talk about my missiology professor, if you've been around, uh, at Corbin. And, and all he ever did was tell stories. It was a great class. I didn't learn anything except for about Dr. Wright's life. But I know a lot because I steal his stories all the time. And he told his stories. He was a little on the, uh, the older side. Uh, he was quite a bit older, actually. And he would just tell the same story like once a week, like you had never heard it before. But one of the things he told us, when these kind of topics of spirituality came up, is that when he first got to the mission field, he's going into Brazil, he's going on the Amazon, and, and he's like really in the middle of nowhere where people had never seen a white person before, and him and his wife show up. They'd never seen a white person before. And he said the first thing he saw when he got there are people that were jumping 12, 15 feet in the air like they were flying. And he said there was no question in my mind. And this is, I'm at a, Baptist school, right? So this is, we don't talk about this stuff. We just pretend that people that think about this stuff, they're kind of, you know, a little woo. like what's going on over there? That's for those people at that other church. I mean, that's kind of how we think. And Dr. Wright is like, there is no question in my mind that it was demonic. I mean, these people, and there was lots of stuff, other stuff that kind of fed that belief as he went on in that area. But, but these people are floating the air. So they're almost flying this is not a guy who's making this stuff up. Uh, and he said it was absolutely demonic. I have a friend, Rob Bovey, he played baseball with me at Corbin. And uh, this one baseball trip, we, we just ended up telling ghost stories while we were driving. Um, and it was funny to see a bunch of college baseball players be scared to get to the hotel room after you arrive somewhere. But, but uh, Rob told us this story. Uh, his dad was a part of a church. And uh, he, he got a call one night, the pastor wasn't available, and so Rob's dad goes, and he shows up at this house, and this, this woman, I think, had called about her husband and said, this is bad, I don't know what's going on, there's something very dark here, something very evil. And Rob's dad walked in, and this man was crab walking, like backwards on all fours, like fluidly, like he was able to jump up on the couch and he was like going up the stairs super fast. If anything's gonna give you the creepy tingles, that's it right there, like that, I would've been like, gotta go, somebody call the pastor, I would've quit and said somebody call the new pastor. I mean, that's pretty, pretty crazy, right? Like if you see a guy jump up on this stage backwards and all fours, and it turned out, as Rob told the story and they kinda counseled this man and got through these things with this couple, uh, that this man was into some really dark, Things that we consider evil. 
And so here's the first thing that you just, you have to believe, you have to go with me, and it's in our passage of scripture that we'll look at, which is going to be Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. Uh, as, you, as you think about this, you have to believe this. You have to believe that, spirit, that Christianity is spiritual, first of all, and that Christianity, the Bible makes this clear, our experiences make this clear, that Christianity is a religion where there are both good spiritual things and very evil bad spiritual things. Obviously, they're not part of the Christian faith, but they exist, and we believe that they kind of try to mess up what's going on. Now, you go, wait, I've never had these experiences, so is this sermon going to apply to me at all? Is there anything I can take away? I want you to listen to C.S. Lewis's quote from the Screwtape Letters. If you've never read it and you're interested in what we're going to talk about today when we're done, the Screwtape Letters, great place to start. Here's what, what he says. There are things for humans to do all day long without his minding in the least. Sleeping, washing, eating, drinking, making love, playing, praying, working. Everything has to be twisted before it's of any use to us. And us is two demons talking. You see, what we need to think about here is while we're going to talk about the spiritual dark forces that exist and that Paul points us to that are in opposition of what we ought to do and how we ought to live in Christian circles, sometimes Satan just does it in a different way. He says, here's what we'll do. Here's the darkness. We'll just let them be all about their housework. We'll let them be all about their job. We'll let them be all about the fun things that they like to do in life because what matters for the dark forces is not that you're scared. Sometimes you getting scared could be bad for them. What matters to the dark forces is that you get further and further away from God. Now, as we read this passage, a couple of things uh, to keep in mind about this passage. Uh, first of all, you'll see a lot of themes right here in 10 through 20 that if you were part of our last series and you listened to our last series, Paul re-brings up. And so we want you to know that like, you know, when you're trying to Stand firm in the Lord. This is a spiritual issue, and there are spiritual things going on that make it happen or make it not happen. You also notice a few key words stand, power, armor, fearlessly. This is an attempt, in a lot of ways, for Paul to motivate the reader, us, hopefully, into living a more godly life, into winning this spiritual battle that exists within Christian circles. You can think of a number of scenes, but since it's the 4th of July, um, one of the greatest speech ever written, I think, the greatest speech, better than the Gettysburg Address, better than any other speech you've ever heard, better than Bush's post-9-11 speech, is the speech at the end of the movie Independence Day. Um, it's a, if you've never heard that speech, then you haven't heard a great speech yet. And Greg Kinnear, I believe, uh, delivers that speech. It's the world's all-time greatest speech. And he gets to the end, and he says this really classic, wonderful line that it also makes me chill up, chill up in a good way, though. He says... And the world will remember that today is Independence Day. And so he like makes the Independence Day thing big and they go kill all the aliens. And in some ways, this is Paul's swung song to say, look, I, I just told you how you ought to live, what your new identity is. And now to inspire you and to remind you what you're really up against and what really is at stake, here's what I have to say about it. And the last thing you need to know is that much of this is drawn from the book of Isaiah. Uh, makes the Old Testament and the New Testament go together, something that we don't think about enough. And so here's how Paul starts. Finally, his conclusion. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Now the first thing you need to kind of recognize and think about and have in your brain is that this isn't a quick fix. 
Paul is not saying here, okay, here's the solution. Here's what's going to make you win the spiritual battle. Take your strength from God. Take your strength from God. He's saying, look, if you want to live out this faith that you have in Jesus, then here's what you need to do. You need to continually be finding your strength in God. You need to be a person that draws on the strength of the Lord. It's not our own strength. It's not like we just do something and we become strong. We constantly and consistently are pulling from the strength of God so that we can live our lives. Here's what we do, though. Here's where it all gets messed up. So many people who are genuinely trying to live for Jesus, their whole plan, their whole effort, their whole goal is just to try harder. If I just try a little harder, I can break this addiction. If I just try a little harder, I can, I can fix this part of my life. If I just try a little harder, then I can be nicer to people. And Paul says, hey, finally, let me tell you my big opening to my big conclusion, my big speech, my big motivator. Here's what you need to do. Don't try harder. Do better at drawing your strength from God. Oh, yeah. Just, you know how this happens in a lot of ways. I mean, there's so many ways that it happens, but you know some of them. I mean, it's pretty obvious. Like, be a part of church. You know, like, be a part of it. Don't just show up to it, but be a part of church. And, and when I preach, pay attention and uh, have friends that are Christians that aren't afraid to call you out on things. Or if you're in the middle of thinking, should I kill my dog? You can call them and say, hey, I need somebody to spend the night with me because I don't want to wake up my wife and I don't know how I'm going to get through this. Uh, how about this? Read the Bible. We know that. But don't just read the Bible. I say this all the time because you're supposed to read the Bible. Read the Bible because you go, this is the words of life. I mean, this is God telling me how to live, and this is God showing me how to live, and there's something that's supernatural that happens. This is just from my perspective. Supernatural that happens when we read the Bible and take it seriously. It's like God strengthens us in some way, and verses are brought back to our minds when we're in the middle of a day and we're facing a situation. All of a sudden, it's like, oh, that. Pray. Brain surgery, but pray. I mean, just like make sure that you go, hey, God, I need strength. I need your help today. I need you to fix this. I need you to help me with this. I don't think I can do this. I keep messing up in this area. It's, it's crazy because I, I know people and people want to fix things and people, you know, will talk to me about like, well, this area of my life isn't good enough. And it's like, well, how devoted are you to your church? And how often are you praying? And how often are you spending time with God? And who are the other solid Christian influences in your life? So, well, I don't really pay attention to any of those things. Well, then you're not going to have the strength to stand firm in God. Won't happen. A lot of people, it's like, oh, here's where I'll get my strength. I'll just try hard. Like that, you don't get strength from trying hard. You get strength from another source. We could apply this in, you know, the physical world, right? Like you don't get your strength from going and working out. You get your strength from the things you put into your body and they allow you to work out and eventually you keep building up. And that is what Paul is saying. Find your strength in God. But here's the other part. Here's the, this is big. This is big. If you're, like, if you're like, well, this spiritual stuff, if you started with that, I don't know anything about it. I have a question. How hard are you trying to stand firm in the Lord and the things that he wants from you? Because if you're not trying then you don't need to worry about satanic attacks in a supernatural feeling kind of way because Satan's good with you just how you are. And you never want Satan to be good with you just how you are, just so you know, it's really bad. He has little horn things and he's red and he's mean. It's a really bad idea. And so 
ask yourself. I mean, this first part, Paul says, hey, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Are you, are you doing things to take in your strength from God? Are you even attempting to stand firm in the Lord and to live out what he wants you to live out? Or are you just trying to avoid some sins and kind of trying to go to church every now and then? Because if it's the latter and not the former, then, then you aren't a threat. You're not even in the battle. And so Satan will let you sit idly on the sideline watching, to mix metaphors, uh, not doing anything at all, and he'll be okay with you being just like that. He continues, Ephesians 6, 11 through 12. Put on, this part you probably know, the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Check this out, this is huge. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Ephesians 4.24 says, And put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And putting on the new self is very similar to putting on the armor of God. Except for it seems, as you kind of read it and you kind of just pay attention, that the armor of God protects us so that we can actually live out our new identities. That's what Paul's getting at. Here are the things he's about to say, that if you will do them, they will help you to live out the morality that, that is summed up in having a new identity in Christ. In verses 14 through 17, he's going to show us what that armor is, and he's going to draw from Isaiah 11, 5, and 52, 7. But in some ways, I want you to know that the, the armor serves as an identifier. You see, when people went into battle, it wasn't like, well, let's just get some metal on so I don't get stabbed. They would have they got their whole gear on, and they all would have looked the same, and people would have gone like, that's the Romans. There they are. Look at them in all their mighty gear. And here's the truth. If you don't put on this armor, not only are you unprotected from the, the schemes and the ways of Satan, but also you're not going to be recognizable as a Christian. You won't be recognizable for being in Christ. And here's the other part. Putting on this armor, Paul says, helps us to stand against the devil's schemes. This is something you have to believe. The devil has a scheme. He has a plan. And it's not to build you up. It's not to help you. It's not to raise you up and cause your life to get better. It's actually to destroy your life. Satan's goal, his plan, is to pull you away, whether you're a Christian or not, is to pull you away from Jesus. He doesn't want you to take on a new identity. He doesn't want you to live out a godly morality. He wants you to be destroyed. And, and until you recognize that, you're just going to kind of drift, I think. You're just going to kind of drift. The word that, that he uses is to struggle. Our struggle, he says, is not against flesh and blood. It's not against the things we can see. It's not just against our own bodies and our own minds. It's actually against these dark forces. And the word means wrestling or to fight or to battle. 1 Peter 2.11 says a similar thing. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. I mean, when we think about Christianity... I don't know, it just seems, maybe I'm wrong about this, but when we think and we talk about Christianity, what we talk about is, is this beginning, here's what you need to do, 
Accept Jesus as your Savior. That's what we tell people. And then we kind of put people on this, this like, we say, here's this, ready? Here's your beginning point, and now you're on this very nice, lovely path. It's full of, of green trees and happiness and joy and peace and love, and everything will be nice for you. And eventually, you'll go through a gate at the end there, and you'll open up the gate, and you'll walk in, and it will be heaven, and it will be great for you. Isn't that kind of how we teach it? Become a Christian. Everything will get better for you. Become a Christian, you'll be happy. Become a Christian and you'll have total joy forevermore and nothing will ever go wrong for you again. And we believe in joy and we believe in peace and all those things, but, but Paul and Peter both, they're pretty important. So let me tell you what it's like. You begin, you take a new life in Christ, and then you walk out into a battlefield for your very soul. You walk out into a place full of landmines and flaming arrows and struggle, wrestling, war. Oh, I look at the Christian, the Christianity in our country. And it's just a bunch of people taking a little walk down their merry way. And all the while, Satan's going, this is sweet because I don't even have to shoot an arrow at them because they're not doing anything. They think it's a walk in the park, and I'm just getting my arrows, just shooting them down, hurting them all the time, and they have no clue what's going on. They have no clue what's going on. But Paul gets to the end of this beautifully written letter where he says, you are a new person in Jesus, a brand new person, and you have a new morality, a new way of living your life. And here's what it's like, not a walk in the park, but a war against your soul. And we need to believe it if we're ever going to accomplish much for Jesus. Ephesians 6, 13 through 16. Therefore, because you're in a war, because the dark forces, the evil, the things that exist in some spiritual realm that are trying to tear you down exist because they're there. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt buckle of truth around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now this is a big deal. If we're going into war, we need to pay very close attention to this. But some re- for some reason, I think anyway, and I've grown up in the church, this has been relegated to a kid's passage. It's like this very scary, intense, hey, by the way, Christianity is like a war, kid's passage. Right? I mean, if you know this kind of section of the Bible and you've talked about it, it was in a Sunday school class when you were little, little, and there was a picture and it had the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness, and, and you just thought it was cool because you were a little boy that's like, yeah, Christianity, man, this is awesome. I get to come to this. But it doesn't seem, at least in my church experience, at least in my personal experience, that when I got older, I paid any attention to what this actually means. I could have told you that, that the helmet is salvation. Could have got that. But what does that mean, the helmet is salvation? And so let's explore these. We won't spend too long, but let's explore them just a little bit together. First of all, the belt buckle of truth. And basically what this is saying is that we must be held together. Our identities must be held together by truth. 
It also means that, that because we have the truth, it should compel us to speak the truth. It doesn't just mean be honest, don't tell a lie. It means that we are wrapped up in truth. It has the idea of girding up one's loins. And um, if you don't know what that means, it's because you're an American that lives today. But, but when Paul lived, uh, they wore long flowing gowns. And, and Jesus would have worn one of these and all the disciples would have worn one of these. It's just how clothes were made. And so if you were gonna run a race or you were going to fight a battle, then you didn't just do it with things hanging down around your ankles. Instead, you would pull your, your, your thing, your clothes up, and you would tie them around your waist so that you could run, so that you could fight, so that you could be more athletic. And, and Paul here says the thing that allows for you to stay in the battle the thing that holds it all together so that you can move and you can decipher and be quick on your feet when Satan comes at you is truth. Truth. Big deal. Because what's happening, at least in my generation, is that we are just throwing away truth. And we're throwing it away for feeling. Actually, in my marriage, this wasn't my wife's idea, which those of you who know me could have... I could have already guessed after I tell you this. We are trying to stop saying this phrase, I feel like, when we're talking about what we actually believe. Because there's been this subtle shift, and it's been happening for about 20 years, where you're in a conversation, you're in a debate, you're in a discussion about very weighty things, God or morality or why we exist or whatever it might be. People always go, well, I feel like we exist because here's the truth. I don't really care why, what you feel about why we exist. The question for me and the question for us as Christians is what do we believe about certain issues based on what God has told us about certain issues? You see, when you allow for feeling, emotion to be the thing that ties you up, ultimately it's going to let you down and you're going to stumble and you're going to no longer live out your identity in Christ. Truth must be paramount. And we find truth in the word of God. There is no other good source. Nobody's even saying any other source in our culture today. The only other source that I know of for truth is feeling. And feelings oftentimes lead us away from truth. I would have, let me just be honest, let's just tie this together. I would have killed my dog if it came down to feeling. I wasn't looking at my feelings going, well, I feel like this ought to be true. I went, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, and I'd have. What does God say about animals in the Bible? What does God say the fruit of the Spirit is? Was this the Holy Spirit that told me to kill my dog? Or was this something else? And I would go, I'd go to Colossians, and I'd go to Galatians, and I'd be like, well, it says that the Holy Spirit's gonna lead me to things like peace, and it's gonna lead me to things that are loving, and it's gonna lead me, this is a big one, this held me on so many days. It says that the Holy Spirit is gonna lead me to, to, to gentleness, like, well, it's not very gentle to kill another living creature. It's not. We must, and this is big in the church in America today, we must throw away this idea that feeling dictates morality and how we got here and why we exist and what we ought to think about God because our feelings truly do not matter when it comes to truth. Our feelings are wrong all the time. There's actually this new study that's out. It's very interesting to me. And they're finding now they're finding that they used to believe. They used to believe that your head and what you thought and kind of the, the chemicals in your brain affected what took place in your stomach. 
And there's new studies out now that are showing that, that sometimes the opposite is true. The things that are happening in your stomach actually affect the way that you think. It's a big deal. It's like this. Have you ever felt like nervous about something? And you go, well, my brain's making me nervous. The new research is actually going, wait a minute. What's happening in your stomach is triggering something in your brain that's making you think that you're nervous. And so this is honest. This isn't even a joke, what I'm about to say. What this tells me is that most of our society is making their decisions about truth based on what they ate for lunch. This is, real. this is not like Christian research. This is like real research that people are finding. And I hate to think that you're going to determine what's right and wrong based on if you had a hot dog or a hamburger yesterday on the 4th of July. That was a little bit of a joke. We must cling to truth if we are going to beat the evil forces. The breastplate of righteousness. Christians are to reflect the righteous character of God. And the question is this, are you actively trying to do what God wants you to do? Have you read the passages, if you've been around, that we've mentioned the last couple weeks to go, what is it that I'm supposed to do? Galatians 5, 16 through 26, Colossians 3, 1 through 13. I mean, you actively trying to figure out what God wants you to do, or are you just kind of doing what you want to do? Because the breastplate, the thing that protects our heart, is a desire to do what God wants us to do always in every situation. He says, with the feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. The imperative here is readiness. A lot of times we take this as like, I'll spread the gospel, but the imperative is actually readiness. And we ought to live our lives in a way that is ready to serve God, to spread the gospel, to tell people about Jesus, to worship him. I ask you, are you ready? Did you even come to church ready today? to do what God wanted you to do, to celebrate God, to, to make a difference for God, to be excited about God. Paul says that, that we have to have shoes on that are like, I want to do something for Jesus, I'm ready, and if an opportunity comes, boom, we take it, because we're just ready to do what God wants us to do. Think about it, it's a big deal. If you're taking a walk in the park, you're not on alert. But if you're in the middle of a battle, you're paying attention to everything, right? You're always looking for an opportunity. And Paul's looking and going, you can't treat this like a walk in the park where you're just kind of going along. You have to go, wait a minute, I'm ready at all times to make a difference for God, for God. Sometimes that means preaching the gospel and we need to just remember, and this is always important and I try to do this every week, but the gospel is this, that, that we were sinners, we've done bad things, we've disobeyed our parents and we've told lies and we've said things we knew we shouldn't say and, and so God sent his son Jesus to come to earth, live a sinless life and then take on our punishment. He died and he rose again three days later according to scripture so that if we accept him as our savior we might have life. Think about that story. Don't let it just go in one ear and out the other. Think about that. The God of heaven came down to earth to save you and I. And Paul says, because of this, because you believe this, because you've clung to this, because this is what your faith is in, you now should be ready to serve him. It should be your goal and your hope and your aim to do something today for Jesus because he did everything for you. Man, what if we just did that? What if we just did that? I believe, if you're a Christian, I believe Jesus died for me. And so my whole hope today is that I will have an opportunity to do something, just anything, for him. 
Ah, that's when we get protected from what Satan wants to do against us. The shield of faith. Given the language Paul uses here, it's actually of special importance. And a couple of things. First of all, shields were used in groups. Very important to church. And by the way, this passage, when it says you, and when it says, uh, it says the first person, it's actually first person plural. So all of it is like you guys, to use our Northwestern vernacular. It's like you guys put on the helmet of salvation. You guys put on the breastplate of righteousness. And here, when he says the shield, if you were to go back and you were to look at warfare at the time, the people would put their shields together so that when the arrows came, they were all protected. And not only that, but sometimes the shields could be used as an offensive weapon because they would charge with their shields. And it tells me, this is what it tells me, one shield, not that great, you know, you get shot in the back or whatever. But when you have a whole army that's putting the shield of faith, their faith out in front of them and saying, I will, I will have faith in front of me, my faith in what Jesus has done for me, my faith in what God wants to do for me, then all of a sudden, Things start happening for the better and we're actually protected. This will make church so awesome. Is that you go out and you say, well, I could do my Christian faith alone. Yeah, you can probably do it a little bit alone, but you'll never do it as well alone. But when everybody comes together and we put up our shields in tandem and we, we say we're going to stand in our faith together, then all of a sudden there's protection that doesn't happen without, with outside of Christian unity and Christian connection outside of the church. The shield here is primarily about the faithfulness of God. It's not our faith that protects us. It's about the faithfulness of God. But we must grow in our trust that God will be faithful and he will fulfill our promises and that he will come through whenever things look bad. You want to pray one of the most dangerous things I've ever prayed? Say, God, this is dangerous. I'm not saying say it. I'm saying think about saying it. Say, God, do whatever you need to do in me to increase my faith telling you what happens a lot of times when people pray this is bad stuff i mean just like stuff will happen because sometimes it takes going through just awfulness to really say i have to i will rely on god you remember and i've talked about this before but right after uh, the twin towers were bombed on september 11 2001 remember that and how everybody turned to their faith uh, they, they turned to prayer and they said we have to rely on the faithfulness of god because we don't know what's going to come or what's this going to be like for us anymore in this country you remember that sometimes that's what it takes for our faith to grow and sometimes if you're up against it right now and you're like this is bad this is the perfect time for your faith to grow because you go, I just, I can't do anything anymore. There's only one place I can turn my attention is to the faithfulness, the promises of God. My faith has grown through the years as I've, Psalm 94, 18 and 19, when, when I feel my foot slipping, your faithfulness, O Lord, supports me. When I'm filled with cares, your reassurance soothes my soul forever. I have clung to that verse in every bad situation in life and said, God, I don't know how I'm getting through this. I don't know how to feel about this. I don't know what to do about this, but I'm going to trust that you're not going to let me hit the ground and you're going to support me because of your faithfulness. And God, not once, not once has ultimately let me down. There's been moments where I've gone, God, you messed this up. You messed this up. I can't believe you let this happen. I prayed, I prayed, and you didn't do the right thing. But in the end, every single time, God has worked every situation out for my betterment. The helmet of salvation. Become a Christian or else you will always lose. You will always lose the battle against the dark forces. If you're not a Christian, if you've never placed your faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus to save you from your sins, then, then I'm telling you, you're going to lose the battle. But if you're a Christian, remember your salvation. 
That's a big deal. I mean, how often in the given week do you go, oh, Jesus saved me from my sins. He saved me from an eternity in hell. He saved me so that I get to go to heaven. He saved me so that I can have a relationship with God, so that I can pray, so that I can sing songs of worship. I mean, how many times do you go, I'm saved and it's incredible? Because the more, and this is what I found, and I'm not very good about this. I'm a forward-thinking person. It's hard for me to look backwards sometimes. But I found that the people who look back on what God has done and saving them more often generally win the battles against Satan more often. It seems like the more people go, oh, Jesus died for me and I can't believe he would give me that gift, the more they have the ability to live for God on a daily basis. And so put on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. There's a change here because the belt was truth, the helmet was salvation, uh, but the sword isn't the spirit. The spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, that has moved me in my prayer times is the one who makes the Bible come to life in our lives. And over the next two weeks, we're going to talk a ton about the Holy Spirit, the forgotten part of the Trinity. We're going to talk a ton about his work and his role in our lives. And I hope you'll be a part of that because we we need to know more about the Holy Spirit. But what this says is, look, you read the Bible and you trust God to make the Bible clear to you, to help you understand the Bible, and ultimately to show you how to live out the Bible. The word of God specifically is the gospel here. Think about, dwell on, focus on the story of Jesus coming to earth to save you. And then Paul ends this way. And pray in the Spirit on all kinds of occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. We'll cover praying in the Spirit the next couple weeks too, but notice this is just pretty clear, right? I mean, if you read it, Paul says this, big part of this spiritual battle, pray. Pray for yourself, pray for others, pray for Paul, the Christian leaders in your life. Pray, 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 and then pray some more. If you want to win the spiritual battle for your soul, you have to pray. The question should never be, am I fulfilling my duty in prayer? Have I had my quiet time today? The question should be like, are you praying in a way that suggests you recognize that there are dark forces that are trying to win the battle for you? Because when you think like that, don't you just want to pray more? You ever been confronted with with darkness, with scariness? You ever been really, really scared? And you just start praying. Oh boy, oh boy, God, I need you to help me here. I need you to help me here. There's this one time that uh, I've told this story too. I'm full of old stories today, but I, I was house sitting for my grandparents, and they have tons of windows. Um, I mean, just just tons of windows. Beautiful view out in West Salem, and uh, and I walked in, and there had been a couple weird things leading up to this. I uh, had come home. The first night or come to their place the first night and at like 3.30 in the morning their dog started barking at the window and there was a car parked out at the top of their kind of long uphill driveway and then it drove off. The, the next day the sensor light stopped coming on. And so I'm on edge coming home this night and I walk in and as soon as I walk in glass shatters downstairs. Come in on the upstairs, glass shatters. 
And I almost peed myself, first of all. And in that moment, super easy to pray. I mean, it's like, God, I'm dead. Help me do something. You know, let that person break their leg downstairs. Do whatever. You know, I mean, it's, in those moments, it's easy to pray. By the way, a light fixture had fallen, shattered, came back with the big, mighty police officers in all their hokey gear, and they said a light broke. But I did get to follow the police cars to the house, one of my greatest memories, followed by a very embarrassing memory. But, but we understand that, it, that if we recognize danger, then prayer becomes easier. And I think Paul gets to the end of this, he says, pray, 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 because now I've told you about the danger that exists in your life. And so therefore you ought to pray. And here's what I think Paul is saying. This is just it. This is simple. It's simple. Get in the fight. Stand firm. Try to make a difference for Jesus. And then put on the armor. Put on the armor because you recognize, you recognize that it isn't just good things happening in this Christian faith. God is working and moving in your life and we believe that he who is in us is greater than he that is in the world and we believe that God has plans to make us prosper and to grow us and to show us love and to bring us into his eternal kingdom. But we also know that the devil has a scheme and he's trying to tear you down. He's trying to hurt you. He's trying to destroy you. And so get in the fight. Don't just go through the motions. Get in the fight and put on the armor of God. And if you will, then the Christian spirituality will just, you'll see it. You'll see it more and more. And you'll win it more and more. Will you pray with me? Lord, oh God, I thank you for the work that you've done in me and for how this armor has saved me. I mean, not for eternity like you have, God, but saved me from doing dumb things, from losing Big time battles, Lord. Um, God, I thank you for the Christian examples around me who are battle tested, who have had the arrows of Satan fired at them over and over and have come out victorious, Lord. I just want to pray for everybody, God, that sits in front of me, band that stands behind me, and those who will listen online who are just... Uh, just struggling. And maybe they haven't even recognized it as a spiritual battle, but, but Satan is just attacking and it's clear that he's fighting against them and they don't feel like they're winning. I pray, God, that you would help them to just put this armor on. And I pray, God, even more for those who aren't in the fight, for those who aren't Christians. I pray that you would bring them to salvation for those, God, who who are Christians but are just going through the motions and their lives look like everybody else and Satan and his minions, his demons are just satisfied watching them do nothing. I pray that they would get in this fight because God, I know, I know and there's people here with me who know that being in the fight is so much better than standing outside the lines and watching, Lord. And so I pray that you would bring them in you'd make them passionate about you and they would follow you passionately, God, and serve you passionately and they would stand firm God, in your strength. Lord, we love you and we thank you for the protection that you bring and that you, that you step down into darkness, into our world full of its evil and its pain and its suffering. You step down here as the light of the world so that we, God, could be brought out of evil and out of darkness. You came down to crush the head of Satan. 
So God, I pray that we would take hold of every gift that allows for that to be possible in our lives. We would get in the fight and we'd put on the armor, standing firm in you, Lord. We love you. We love you. We love you. And we pray these things in your holy name. Amen.